there's no language to say what the studio has been. It's been overwhelming and much larger than anything that I conceive. The approbation that this community has conferred on the studio, you can ask for it, you can pray for it, you can wail for it, or you can pay for it, or whatever, but people show up. Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast sponsored by Creative Pinellas. This is Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here today with Bob Demon jones Hello, Barbara. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming. Certainly. So I wanted to start with a question. Usually when I introduce people, I introduce them as sort of in some of their roles. Mm-hmm. But rather than that, I want to start with a question. Who is Bob Devon jones <laughs> That's a funny question. You know, uh, well, that's, I, well I, the reason why it's funny, I, I don't think of myself in the second or third person. Um, it's always circumstantial who I am because I'm very governed by my moods and temperament and the given circumstances on any given day. But mostly, Bob Devon Jones is his father's son and his mother's child. And that would be the breath of the aperture that would say, aha, who, this is who he is. Then tell me about your father and your mother. Well, my dad was, not, though not Jamaican, always had two to three jobs, um, certainly during my growing up years. And my mother would often match him. I'm, you know, I hate to say I have a strong work ethic. Any job that I've attempted to do, certainly in my adult life, If it's not picking cotton, I can do it. And if it's something I love, like being a creative worker, I can do it from sun to sun. And then if in part of that day, there's a moment for me to do some cooking, which I like to do. And I I used to say I live to eat, but I don't say that anymore, but I still think it. So I, I like to break bread with family and or friends. I come from a big family from the South, Louisiana. So it's, you know, nothing remarkable about Bob other than he likes to show up. In the world, as far as I can tell, though, you show up, sometimes you show up as a director, sometimes you show up as a writer, sometimes you show up as an actor. Certainly you show up as the organizer of Studio at 620. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of different things to show up. Yes, around. and I'm on several boards, which is also a part of it. So my thought asking who Bob Devon Jones is, is, is how do all those aspects of you live in the same place? Well, that's a good question. And there's probably an uncomplicated answer. Essentially, right now, absolutely right now, most of what I do, if not all of what I do, is some way to honor my mother. I lost her about five years ago. And so there's no preceding event that prepares you for that epic displacement. So that becomes my, as they say, true north. No disrespect for my father, but I am my mother's child, and I'm sort of that way. Almost every good thing that I think to do stems from her, specifically. I was an old soul at five and six and three. There's a picture of me sitting on the balustrade of this apartment that we all used to live in, eight of us, one bedroom, and a Murphy's bed where my two half-brothers slept, Horace and Theus. And... Um, I'm in all white, and I'm just sitting, looking into the middle distance with a furrowed brow, and I'm three, and thinking, oh, I still feel like that. I mean, 
that's me. You know, I, um, I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, is this an orange? Who is Bob? I mean, you have, to, you have to think and live towards your future, so you'll have one. But I'm very much in the moment. It's very improvisational. Up until very recently, I didn't listen to jazz much because that was my internal clock, the way I occur, like a sax solo by Coltrane. But now that I appreciate jazz more and I can understand it, I can see how it fits me. And at this age, I'm... I'm you know, I'm good with the melody or the dissonance or the assonance or the two colliding together that it creates. More than anything, I like to be present. How does something catch your interest? How does, how does something grab your heart and then you commit to it as an artist? Well, I think the grab has to be, you know, there. So you're just walking along and then something goes... Mm -mm. Even when I direct, you know, whatever the project, it, it, it's something I've sorted out what heals me as a person and what inspires me. And what heals me as a person is life. The difficult bits, the laudatory bits, the, all of that. But what inspires me is creative work, either in dance or in music or in art. It's always startling, you know, if you see a cartoon and the character is sleeping and somebody's frying bacon downstairs, the bacon smell wafts up and you can see the smoke and then, it, and then he wakes up. However, what inspires me and, 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 and in art is that it doesn't waft to me. It goes right upside the head. And, and I, I love that, I live for that. And it turns out it, it's ubiquitous. It's not, oh, just this or here or here. You look around and you see that, the intentionality of it, the improvisation, because you leap, you know, that poem, come to the edge, oh, it's too far, come to the edge, oh, we'll fall, come to the edge. They ran to the edge and they flew. Whatever this is, well, first the running to the edge and then taking that leap, Art, anything creative like that, just slaps me upside the head. And I want to be overwhelmed in that. Because I, I can be inside my head 24 hours a day, just you know, thinking about this, thinking about this. And I like it when you're captured, you know, captured. Like we did this play Macbeth. I have never in all of my years of directing watched a play every night that I directed, and I rarely watch it on opening night, and I did this one. I suspect it had to do with, and that's what's so delicious about live theater, it was always different. And many of the ensemble, they made it different in a cumulative way, like Thursday's performance was Thursday, and then Friday had a little of Thursday's, but something, and maybe a borrowing a little bit of what was gonna happen on Saturday. But they were always prosecuting the narrative forward, so, that was compelling to me because you would see life lived in that moment and that's always arresting to me. So as an example, and that play played for three weeks and I just I just don't have the bandwidth normally to see it over and over and over. But if you can make Shakespeare delicious over a three week period, and I've seen it happen. I mean, I saw Ian McKellen 25 some odd years ago at Royce Hall at UCLA do Richard III. He did it set in the Third Reich. It was breathtaking. 
So, you know, something that takes your breath away if you have an appetite for it. And you can, you'll come back the next night. It doesn't even need to be what you remembered, because your body has a kinesthetic reaction, or mine does. And so that's what I, that's what feeds me and what fuels me. I'm inspired. So it sounds to me like you kept discovering the play over and over yes. as it was in its performance. How about discovering it as you were rehearsing with the actors or even your approach to digging into it and how to shape the performance and shape what the audience was going to see and what the actors were going to experience? Well, Shakespeare, the extraordinary thing about him, and uh, Harold Bloom said Shakespeare invented the human. So. You have the text and you have the plot of whatever the text is for that play. But on any given page, there is a prescient and incredibly humbling insight into the human condition. And so the world's best actor, if they just even bring their B game, they will astonish you because it's all there in the text. So if you, as a very near example, to be or not to be, but that is the question. So if you can find an actor giving all of his or her experience informed in that little phrase, you will see a glimpse into the who of am I. And if somebody shares that with you, then you, you, you have an insight into what it is to be here in that moment. And so that's why Shakespeare, for the world's best actor, is is a feast, a movable one, because it, night to night the the performance changes, informed by the quality of the listening of the people for whom you're sharing the play. So, so in the rehearsals for Macbeth, you worked with an all African American cast. It was a referral to Voodoo Macbeth that Orson Welles directed as a, a young man, but to my mind, very much a piece of Pinellas County, St. Pete area. You used Yala Ford, who is an artist here, to design the set. You worked with dancers and musicians. So those are artists very rooted in, in, in this area locally. Mm -hmm. So it, the Macbeth seemed to me to be very much a, a product, an outgrowth of the community here. It, it definitely was. And Fanny Green, who's a professor at uh, USF Tampa, she was our dialects coach. Erica Sutherland, who was an associate producer, played Lady Macbeth. It's definitely a family affair. And our friend Sheila Cowley was the dramaturg. And um, I never read the Orson Welles script, nor had I ever, and there's only extant little minutes of video of it. I just knew that it was a great idea one that was given to me by Sheila. She said, I heard about this, and I thought, hmm. Because, you know, I don't mind reinventing the wheel. If you can do that, that is devoutly to be wished. But if you, if something speaks to you, it speaks to you, and you don't have to sort the shorthand, you know, when it arrives to you, like an idea, you go, da-da. And it, it was an really delicious organizing principle for this. And then it allowed me to, of my 62 years on the planet, bring all of that from my study of Zora Neale Hurston to Langston Hughes, to definitely James Baldwin, my biggest teacher, to my year in London, the various instructors, my year in, well, nine months and nine weeks in Greece, directing the Iliad, dance, I wanted the audience to be immersed in this world that Yala Ford 
gave us the canvas for. I wanted the audience a little thrust forward into the action. So I wanted the actors coming from around, you know, circling them as it were. And I wanted a, a, a pace that was something uh, promoted to, not pain, but we're sitting forward. Because I think especially Macbeth, but certainly uh, many of the Shakespeare plays are immersive. And unfortunately, I think a lot of performances of Shakespeare, at least the ones that I had growing up, were the opposite of immersive. Well, I think they all are immersive. And I think that whatever else Shakespeare is, he's very domestic. And so Lady Macbeth and Mr. Macbeth, that's why we put that panto in the front. That's the happiest you're really going to see them. And that's why I wanted it in all white. Not that they were going to then go to a blackness, but a darker place. And I wanted exuberance because, you know, even if it's once upon a time, the thing that animates it is, let me tell you something, and then here it goes. And the story specifically has aberrations or people conjuring right in front of you, which is what Shakespeare does as a dramatist. He, he seduces you, he cajoles you. He's emphatic almost always, even in his subtle, 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 subtle moments. It is a, he jars the floor. The whole sweep of, as I told them at the very first rehearsal, the Shakespeare changes your DNA. And two or three of them said, you're absolutely right. And at my age, you know, that's, that's the biggest accolade when, an accolade when they can say, you, are, you were right about that. I'm changed. So some of the actors in, in Macbeth had never acted Shakespeare, is that? Some of the actors in Macbeth had never acted before. So what is it like to to develop somebody as an actor as you're literally moving towards a performance like that? As you're jumping out of the play. As you're leaping, as your poem. Yeah, well, leaping in this time, it was, even though we had four weeks, you're jumping out of the plane as you're building the parachute. So you got to do it with a deafness. I'm... All of it is a challenge. I immerse myself in the text, and then the minute rehearsals start, I never look at the text again. But I, I've got to watch what they're doing. And if you set up the process, they will eventually start occurring in the text, and that's what I direct. And so I knew that this disparity in their experience in the ensemble was just part of the dynamic of bringing this to fruition. And it wouldn't have been any more easy or more difficult if I had an ensemble of seasoned actors because I'm always looking at, and this is utterly subjective, but that, that moment of, wait for it, truth. And so when you see it, that's it, protect that. So can you give an example with one of your actors or one of the scenes um, when you saw that happen with Macbeth? Oh, I have countless, for instance, there, there is a natural invitation for the woman playing Lady Macbeth to say, unsex me here, blah, 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 blah. When she's doing that monologue, I don't want to speak for the world out there, but I had never seen it interpreted the way she was going about it. And maybe I did once 40 years ago when I saw Judy Dench do it in London at the Young Vic. But she's not asking to be sexless. It's more of a kind of a conspiratorial thing. So in this moment, 
my husband has been away at the wars. And, you know, I've seen Macbeth where there's a lot of fighting and we only did it at the end because it's a domestic drama. She wants to get this in this moment. Let me be resolved to do this bad thing, this great quell. But as soon as her husband comes in, she's got something for him. And to the extent, as an actor, I don't need her to articulate that for me. I'm seeing it. She's manifesting it. I just need her to protect that. So I see my job is there's a forest and there are trees. And sometimes you can be looking at the trees and kind of that's what I want the actors to be doing. But I want to lead them through the forest. And I have a clearing. I have a plateau. I have a swampy area I want them to go through. And in the direction of the play, I'm just leading what they are manifesting as, as, the, as the actor. That's how I like to direct. And that's what animates me. And then I bring not metaphysical aid, but everything that I've learned or experienced or recall up to that point. We had Seneca, Aristotle, Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry. Well, let's talk about Baldwin, because you said he was your greatest teacher. Yes. Why? Or how? Well, we have no, there's no antecedent to coming into the world and being slapped on your bottom and, ah, here I am. But a friend of mine, Kent Lidecker, called me up on the phone a couple years ago, and he's laughing. He used to be head of the MFA. He says, I found you out. And I said, what? He said, I was driving in the car, and I hear a voice on the radio, and I said, that's Bob. Then he realized it's not Bob, it's James Baldwin. And I, and then I just laughed and I said, you're absolutely right. It's who I emulate. I discovered him when I was living in London. It's the first play I ever wrote about. It was was a piece based on James Baldwin called Black Witness with a friend, Vinnie Murphy. And we premiered it at Tufts and then did it at, uh, in Emory, at Theater Emory in Atlanta. And he has that ability, even as a young person, because he didn't you know, graduate from Harvard or Stanford, to apprehend a thing before he fully comprehended it. And, but he did it at such a young age, then the apprehension and then the comprehension were all the same thing. And then added to that is his ability to any sort of structured situation, a republic, a United States, uh, freedom, justice, equality. He could look at the muddy water of that polemic and see the dry land. So I'm not James Baldwin, but uh, I have an affinity for him. I, one of the, the last time I did the piece in Los Angeles, the man who was with him when he died said to me, my friend was in the room tonight. He, he's definitely the ancestor more than my, or as much as my parents, the way I occur as a person today is because of James Baldwin. You are also a playwright and a writer. Yes. And you said something about picking that back up. Yes, because 20 plus years ago, more than a quarter of a century ago, I was directing a play at the Sacramento Theater Company. And where I was staying was about a mile plus from, I could walk to the theater in about 35 minutes. And it was in the autumn and I had forgotten my muffler, so I went back. This is before cell phones, and there was a phone call saying a friend of mine, Roberta Levito, had submitted my play to the Mark Taper Forum, and oh. they had accepted it in their Taper 2 festival. But as I was walking, before I went back, I heard the phone ring, I was thinking, I'm gonna give up acting, I'm gonna go work for Macy's, 
matriculate up through that. So then I got that phone call. And I had written this play as only an outline because I used to do stuff for Black History Month. And I had done Martin Luther King talking to Malcolm X. I had done love letters between Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. I had done this and this. So it was February and they said, can you, what you got? I'd done James Baldwin for them. I had done Links and Hughes. So I said, I'm, uh, uh, yeah, I got something. And I came up with this title, Uncle Ben's B-E-N-D-S, A Home Cooked Negro Narrative. And I put a, a character, and then I would put ideas about the character. So the first time I ever did it was in Sacramento with my yellow legal pad. Okay, now we get to Jimmy Theus, named after my brother. He's a shoeshine boy. And then I would do kind of a scripted improv about who this character was, the whole time making beans and rice, which I served to the audience. Anyway, Roberta had gotten me into the Tapers, Taper 2 New Play Festival. And whatever that feeling was, there was a full-page article a couple months later in American Theatre magazine, and it listed and playwright Bob Devin Jones. First time ever seeing it in print, and, you know. And I've written dozens of plays since then, and I've written several, several plays here in St. Petersburg. But running a small nonprofit, I don't have writer's block. I just don't have... Also, uh, on any given day, I'm on six boards, Public Arts Commission for the city. It's good citizenship, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, slowly and surely I'm going to... Because writing, when I discovered that I could do this back in 91, you know, it, I enjoy acting and I definitely enjoy directing. But when I finish with a piece and it sounds the way I intend it to sound, you know, as James Baldwin said, I'm clothed and in my right mind. So this is the time to start writing. And I do want to take a minute because we may have listeners who don't know what the studio at 620 is. So if you wouldn't mind, I will describe it as a creative space in St. Petersburg that has become a community magnet for visual art, performance art, new plays, Shakespeare plays, traditional plays, and has really added life and vibrancy to the community. Yes. And is known as a place that says yes to artists who have come with ideas. One of the things you're known for with Studio at 620 is always say yes. Mm -hmm. As I was listening to you, I thought, oh, you know what that's really about? That always saying yes is about empathy. Mm. I always think of it as doing opportunity, but in a way... That is, you know, I don't like for actors to audition for me. I was a professional actor and did fairly well for a couple of decades. As an elder, you know, you get to give, if not advice, some witness about what you've experienced so that people might glean something that they might find useful in their toolkit. Might. Might. Well, opportunity is the expression of empathy. Certainly being fiance to the studio has been there's no language to say what it has been it's been you know overwhelming and much larger than anything that i conceived with a partner dave ellis the approbation that this community has conferred on the studio you can ask for it you can pray for it you can wail for it or you can pay for it or whatever but people show up and at some point, 
in the day. You got to be humbled by goodwill, love. You know Steve Tyler from Aerosmith. They have a song called "I Don't Want to Miss a Thing." And so, not everything in the county happens at the studio, but we've seen a ton of stuff and been intimately involved. Either ideas that come to us fully formed, like the beginning of Freefall, or the the beginning of Your Real Stories, or taking over after one season, Midtown Through Our Eyes, and watching it grow. Our Simple Theater had their first productions at the studio. And there's just, it, it just increases. It's like a starter in yogurt. You put it in, and then if you keep some in the pot, you can perpetuate it. And so there's no one that I've met that could have even predicted or even had a, not me, vision of how this city would be transformed by the arts. It just speaks, in my view, to the possibility of saying yes. And so, and we've been doing it now. We didn't start off thinking that that was our mission or our motto, but now it is. It's not just our phrase or our branding. It's what we try to do so that it's young artists. It's not even yet artists, mid-career or somebody like Bob Stackhouse and Carol Mickett with, you know, a retrospective. So that's a tremendous gift. I think it really, to have the opportunity to have your work performed or shown, to get that yes, which is that big door opening for you. And so it's a true act of kindness and generosity, I think. And then also a testament to your success as an artistic leader and creative person. My favorite show that my business partner, David Ellis, carried, it was called, I came up with the title, borrowed it from a traditional song called The Water is Wide. And Dave looked at boating or water in the Tampa Bay area, and it just looked at all aspects of water and boating. I wrote a play for it. My, it's still my favorite. But then the kite show was also just, it was just enormous. And Kenny Jensen was the main curator on that. Uh, one of the first times or second time that Helen French danced at the studio, just astonishing. We did a play of Mark Madoff's that I directed around the country at the Kennedy Center at the Willie Mammoth Theater in D.C. And, the, and in Sacramento and at the Jewish Ensemble Theater, Jet, in Detroit, in Bloomfield Hills. And we did the play Tommy, Jay, and Sally at the studio. And I had directed it four or five times. When we did it at the studio, we did it with Craig Wallace, whom I first met when I did it the first time at the Kennedy Center. So Craig came back and directed it. And Mark and Stephanie Medoff came to, to see it. And I remember we were having a talk with after the play, and I just remember looking. I mean, if you see a young person looking at creative work who is a writer, and they were just smiling and beaming, looking at um, the play, and had very prescient questions of Mark Medoff afterwards. As Oprah says, that's a full circle moment. You know, it's yes. like a complete protein, the rice and the beans. and Yes. You know what I mean? So... Um, but there have been many, uh, uh, these bells that were all in the studio and then the audience stood around the perimeter of it and then that anybody could come in. Dozens of these big clay bells just hanging from the studio. And that, you know, that just, I was delighted in just seeing 
that. I also remember the very first thing we did when we were our groundbreaking, which was June 20th, 620, 2004, no air conditioning. And Sharon Scott came in and sang Dundu Dole, Urban African Ballet, came in with their drums in full costume. And they christened the space. Oh. And years later, we did a show called Photo Kids from Guatemala, and we flew two of the photo journalists from Guatemala, first time on a plane. We flew them there. We had this big exhibit, but we wanted to give them experience. We had Dundu Dole, and they were photographers, and here comes these guys in full dress and women. They had never seen anything quite like that, yet they had an affinity towards it, right? So you see that human diaspora is really, I mean, there's some specifics, but, you know, the motoric and the sensoric gesture is the same the world over. Mm. Motoric is more like your mother. Mm -hmm. So there have been so many things. And of course, our eighth season of Radio Theater Project, you know, and all of the various people around the community and across the Bay who participate in that. So Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I'm a part of that. So I'm thinking... This yeah. is, I mean, I certainly would be a member if I wasn't, uh, you know, working there. <laughs> I know that you have to go. You've got uh, people waiting for you, so I want to thank you so much. Oh, for, you're very welcome. For joining us. I'm Bob Devon Jones. Barbara Sinclair. Playwright, producer, director, actor, and uh, community leader. I'm, I make cookies as well. And makes cookies as well. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.